This semester, we're going through the book of Galatians. And these first couple chapters, we're now in the middle of chapter 2. The first couple chapters are basically Paul um, starting out. It's a pretty angry letter, but lest you be um, kind of put off by that, it actually is a good thing because anger always is a clue as to what really matters. And so if you want to know what is really important to the early Christians, and there are lots of different people who say, well, you know, early Christians believe this or they believe that, and even maybe in some of your classes you hear different ideas. One of the ways that you know what early Christians actually believed is what is Paul so angry about? So that's one of the helpful things about studying his letter to the Galatians. Last week we looked at kind of this long story where he talks about how God revealed the gospel to him and how he came to teach it and how there were these people, we call them the Judaizers. Imagine this, everywhere Paul went telling people who weren't Jewish that you also could be fully accepted in God's family, every time he went around telling people this, what the Bible literally calls the good news, which is what the word gospel means, Paul announces this good news to people, and then these Judaizers come along right after him, sometimes right with him, saying, no, no, Paul's got it wrong. Matter of fact, there's one point in the book of Acts where they stir up a riot in Jerusalem, and Paul gets arrested, and then he appeals to Caesar. So it was tremendous difficulty for him. And tonight we're going to look at one of the things that actually made his life even more difficult. But that isn't the way he talks about it here. The way he talks about it here is there was a threat to the truth of the gospel when the apostle Peter, who understood that God's love and God's welcome went out to all people of every race, tribe, tongue, and nation. Peter believed that. It actually was hard for him to believe it. God had to give him a special revelation because he was so resistant to that idea that people that weren't Jewish could be just as pleasing to God as the Jews were. That was a hard thing for him to believe. But he came to believe it, and then he shrinks back from that. And rather than eating with people who aren't Jewish, which in the ancient world was the way that you say, you're an equal with me. Come eat with me. Come share table fellowship with me. And where Peter had been doing that with Gentiles, which means non-Jewish people, when these Judaizers showed up in Antioch, in the city of Antioch, he shrank back. And we're going to look at that story and why it matters so much. And here's one of the, I think, really helpful things about the story tonight, is that we still struggle, or maybe not enough, with racism. And it's not an education issue, the Bible says. It's not a lack of information issue. It's not even just an issue that be fixed, can be fixed by making rules or telling people to obey the rules. Ultimately, it's a heart issue. But Paul's analysis of what's going on with racism goes even deeper than that. It's not just a heart issue. It's a self-salvation scheme. And that's the way he speaks of it. And in doing that, he actually gives us a tremendously helpful path forward. Not just for racism, but actually for everything. So let's read this passage. It's in Galatians chapter 2. And we'll start reading at verse 11. Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. 
Now, Cephas is another name for Peter, okay? So Paul says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, and Antioch is where Paul is living at this point. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James is the brother of Jesus who's in Jerusalem, before certain men came from James, he, Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. But when these men from James came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, which is another name for these Judaizers. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, or was not in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, I know that's a little confusing. Trust me, we'll explain it. But he is showing the contradiction in the way he's living. You can get that, right? And then I'm going to help you understand what that's about. We ourselves, and Paul's referring to him and Peter, are Jews by birth and not, quote-unquote, Gentile sinners. There's a little sarcasm there. Yet we know that a person is not justified or made beautiful in God's sight by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified or in order to be made beautiful by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now I'm going to read three more verses, though we're really going to focus on these last three next week, but they do conclude his little thought here, so let me read these last three. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this conflict because it elucidates for us what really matters and what really is the true gospel, the true good news. Help us not just to be hearers of the word tonight, but doers. That we would not just believe the right things, but that we would rejoice in your glorious grace and that we would live in line with the grace of the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, what happened? That's the first thing we're going to look at. Why did it matter? Why does Paul make such a big deal about it? Could he just let it go? Why doesn't Paul just tell Peter, you're a racist? Why does he confront him the way that he does. And then what do we learn about this with regard to gospel confrontation ourselves? So that's what we're going to talk about. First, what happened? What happened? 
I said a little bit. Let me just dig into the story here and try to explain what happened. So Peter comes to Paul's hometown. At this point, the Apostle Paul is living in Antioch. And he's been preaching the gospel, the good news, that Christ came not just to save the Jews, but to save the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles are anybody who's not a Jew. So that's everybody, okay? And one of the ways that that was demonstrated is by who you ate with. Who you ate with. And Paul was eating with Jews and Gentiles. When Peter comes to Antioch, he's eating with the Jews and Gentiles because he's come to understand that there are no, there's no like spiritual A team and B team in the kingdom of God. If you have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you, are, you have the same status, the same standing, the same value as anybody else. And it's important that that be demonstrated not just with words, but with the way you live. And Peter understood this. Back in Acts chapter 8, God had actually revealed to him in a vision that you can eat clean and unclean things because Jesus has come. The clean and the unclean was to show you that there, things were not right and that you needed to be holy to be in a relationship with God. But when Jesus comes, he does everything that that clean, unclean distinction was trying to point us to. As a matter of fact, later in the same letter to the Galatians, Paul is going to talk about how the law, the Old Testament law, was a tutor. And he uses a word there for a slave whose job it was to take the children to school. That it, the, the law was to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. So Christ and the work that he did now means that there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. So that's, and Peter gets that. And he's living that out until certain men from James come to Antioch. Now, we don't believe that these people actually are representing what James, the brother of Jesus, taught. Because we have a letter from James, the brother of Jesus. It's in your New Testament. But, and, and that letter, the, the letter says that you're, you know, your relationship with God is based on his grace. Okay, So, it seems that these people were misrepresenting James. They were coming along saying, hey, you know, this guy Paul, he doesn't really know what's up, but we've talked to James. And James is the brother of Jesus, and he says that all you Gentiles need to be circumcised, you need to eat like Jews, you need to dress like Jews, you need to act like Jews, because after all, God told us how he wants us to live in quite a lot of detail. And who are we to just disregard that? That's the kind of stuff they were saying, okay? And so when they show up, Peter gets afraid. And, you know, I find that actually very comforting, that even one of the apostles lives inconsistently. And it causes a big problem. But it helps us to remember that Christianity is not for super people who get it right all the time. As a matter of fact, later, one of my favorite verses in the Bible in 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter actually says that Paul writes things in his letters that are hard to understand. I love that one, too. So, you know, Peter, like, falls into fear and does the wrong thing. He's a hypocrite. And then he says, I don't even understand some of the stuff that Paul writes. I love that. Doesn't that encourage you? Like, you don't have to, like, reach this bar to be in, in a relationship with God. Jesus 
did everything for you to be welcomed into God's presence. But Peter draws back and he separates himself, right? Now, why did this matter? Why, why can't Paul say, well, you know, Peter, I know he's afraid. I don't want to give on him too hard. You know, he does take a lot of flack from these guys. You know, I should probably just let it slide this time. But Paul didn't do that. Why? Well, what he tells us here is that because of Peter's actions, many others are led astray, including Barnabas. You know what's interesting about that is that Barnabas is one of Paul's closest companions. Barnabas's name also means son of encouragement. So here you have this great irony that Peter, the one through whom God showed, I care about Gentiles too, and Barnabas, whose names mean son of encouragement, now by the way they're living are doing damage, real damage, to the Gentile Christians because of the way they're living. They're making it difficult for the Gentile Christians to believe that Christianity is plausible. And that's a big deal. You know, one of my uh, professors in seminary, um, I took this class in hospital counseling. And often we would just, um, a group of us would go out onto the floor and meet different patients, ask them if they wanted to have a visit from a chaplain. And I always loved the way he'd send us out. He'd say, brothers, you know, you may get a chance to share the gospel, you may not, but just try to make it easier for the next Christian they meet. Just try to make it easier for the next Christian they meet. Because so often, Christians make it more difficult for the next Christian they meet. Because of the way they live, because they're arrogant. And that's what's going on. Peter and Barnabas and these other Jews and Gentiles have been led astray. And it's causing real damage to some of the lambs of Christ's flock. Hypocrisy is a big deal. And that's what Paul says in verse 13. They acted hypocritically. Hypocritically. Now that word in Greek, hypo hypocritically, means literally to wear a mask. It's, you're not being truthful. That's a big deal in our day, right? Everybody wants to talk about being authentic. And that's what Paul's talking about here. You're acting hypocritically. Here's what that means. It means you're misrepresenting the gospel, the good news you're misrepresenting it by the way you're living, by your actions. I think I posted this on the Belmont RUF Facebook group, but I was walking this morning. And I've been thinking about this, and I've been thinking, you know, over the weekend, you know, it's just fascinating. Sunday morning, we had the largest mass shooting in Nashville ever, and yet it hardly got much play on the news because of all the stuff that went on with the NFL games. Which is not, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing because I'm glad that people are talking about that issue. Not all the conversations are helpful. <laughs> you know, it's like I just don't even want to be on social media to see people's different opinions. But I'm just grieving over all of this stuff. And, and, and then I'm, I'm walking along. Do we have a thing here in Nashville called the Bicentennial Mall? And I often go walk there because it's close to where I drop my kids off from school and I can play Pokemon Go and walk around. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. So, um, but today Pokemon Go wasn't working. The servers were down. So I actually was looking at, the, uh, at the, all the, like when you walk around Bicentennial Mall, they have like a little area. You're like walking on a map of the state of Tennessee and there's like little displays of every county. And then there's like a timeline. You're walking along a timeline and you see different things. 
And I was parked, just happened to be parked, near the area where they talk about the Trail of Tears and about the forcible removal of the Cherokee Indians, who's, you know, kind of especially like their, you know, I guess like the center of their nation at that point was Chattanooga. Like Chattanooga started when they moved, you know, Chief Ross and the rest of these Cherokees out. And I'm reading about this and seeing this timeline, and I came upon this quote, which really has haunted me all day. It's by a guy named Elias Boudinot from a tribal newspaper called the Cherokee Phoenix in 1830. The Cherokee removal began in 1836, but there was already agitation for it going on. And here's what the guy said. Here is the secret. Full license, that he means full freedom to our oppressors. He's writing as a Cherokee. Full license or freedom to our oppressors and every avenue of justice closed to us. Yes, this is the bitter cup prepared for us by a Republican and religious government. We shall drink it to the very dregs. I just went, oh. Like that was 1830. And on and on and on and on it goes. And what really stings is his perception that we're a quote-unquote Christian country. I'd say hashtag Christian country question mark. Because I, I don't think you would ever want to look back at any era of America and say these were the golden years when our country was living in line with the truth of the gospel. Do you know how hurtful that is when people trumpet those kinds of things? Because this was going on at the same time. And this guy sure didn't feel like he was being treated the way someone should be being treated by a nation that claimed the name of Christ. Hypocrisy is a big deal. Paul goes further and talks about this in verse 15. And let me explain like his train of thought here, okay? So he's saying to Peter, like, you and I were both Jewish. We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now, Paul is not saying Gentiles are sinners. He's basically taking the language that the Judaizers are using. Like, we're the Jews, and then there are these Gentile sinners. And Paul is using it in a sarcastic way. Peter, come on, let's think about this, brother. We're Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. In other words, we understand the gospel now. That it doesn't matter whether we're Jews or Gentile sinners. The only way that we have a relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. We're justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified. In other words, we know that that's the way, and that's the way we ourselves have believed. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. He's like, what are you doing? Like, we understand that we are beautiful in God's sight, not by what we've done, we're not better than these people because of something we did or something they did or didn't do. And look at verse 17. He says, but here's the thing. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, even though we're living by faith in Christ, if while we're doing that we're found to be sinners, does that mean that Christ is the servant of sin? Does that mean that the gospel leads us into sin? 
He says, no, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What he's saying is, the fact that you and I can fall into hypocrisy shows that we have got to trust in Jesus alone. He's saying, look, we understand the only way to be beautiful in God's sight is by faith in Jesus. And yet, we don't always live like that, brother. And I love the way he comes alongside him and says, it's like that song, heal us, not heal them, heal us. We're equal at the foot of the cross. And even when we live out of line with the truth that we profess, with the gospel that we preach, that doesn't show that Jesus causes us to sin. It shows how much we actually need Jesus. That's what he's saying. Like, come back to repentance. And the beginning of coming back to repentance is to say, I need grace. Even though I'm an apostle, I've still hurt some of Christ's sheep by my fear, leading me to separate myself from other people. And Paul's saying, turn back to gospel sanity. You are a sinner. But we have a real Savior. Like that great, line, great quote from Charles Spurgeon, I have a great need for Jesus. We have a great Jesus for our need. That's what Paul's saying to him. Orthopraxy and orthodoxy have to go together. Orthodoxy, right doctrine, has to be lived out in orthopraxy. In other words, the way you live preaches some sort of gospel. Do you realize that? If you're a Christian, the way you live is preaching some sort of gospel. The question is, is it the true gospel that you're saved by grace alone? Or does your life preach the gospel that I'm better than you and that's why God loves me. That's, that's what's going on here. Paul's saying, Peter, you've preached the gospel that we're saved by faith alone, that we're justified, made beautiful, not by living beautiful lives, because we don't live very beautiful lives. But you believe, and I know you believe, Peter, that we're saved and we're beautiful because Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners. Let's make sure that our lives are preaching that same gospel. How crazy is it if what you're saying with your lips doesn't match what you're, match what you're saying with your life? If what your life is saying is, like, I'm so insecure because I'm not really sure that God loves me, and so the best way that I'm going to feel good about myself is to point out all the flaws in everybody else. Like, that's a gospel in a sort of way. You see, that's a, an attempt at saving yourself. And that's what racism is. So let's get into this thing. Why didn't Paul just tell Peter he's a racist? Because Paul wants Peter and the rest of us to understand it's not just a rule issue, it's a heart issue. And in, and in analyzing Peter's sin in this way, he gives us this incredibly helpful insight Racism is a heart issue. It's not just an education issue or a breaking the rules issue. I have somebody very close to me, um, my sister, who's married to an African-American guy. And um, he always thought that racism was a matter of a lack of education. And he was a very well-educated man. Went to Columbia, 
Went to Johns Hopkins, was the chief resident there. He's a doctor now. But I remember when he and my sister married, and then they moved to Birmingham, Alabama, and they were hanging out with really kind of elite people because he was, you know, there doing this fancy medical fellowship in sports medicine. And it's when it began to realize that the most educated people in the town, the cream of the crop, were still racist. And all of his, like, worldview was, like, challenged. I remember talking to him about this one time. I remember he was just kind of shocked because he thought, like, if we could just educate people or if we could just rub shoulders with people and they got to know one another, it would all be better, wouldn't it? That's kind of the hope of post-millennial people, you know, or post-modern people is if we could just talk about it, everything would be better. And he said the problem is sometimes if you talk about what you're really thinking, people are going to hate you more, and you might hate them more. You need something more than just talking about it, and that's what Peter, Paul points us to here. You need to understand that racism is not just a matter of a lack of education. It actually is connected to what you worship and what you're trusting in for salvation. And it may seem kind of crazy. It may seem kind of like this weird religious analysis. But let me explain what he's talking about here. When Paul says to him, you're not walking in line or in step with the truth of the gospel, what he's saying is the gospel has a particular path that it walks on, that there are ways of living that are testifying to the truth that we're saved by grace alone, and then there are other ways of living that are undoing that or giving a lie to that. And that's the way Paul analyzes Peter's racism. What he's saying is, you're treating the Gentiles as inferior. Yes, that's racism, and there are actually commandments in the Bible that say you shouldn't do that. But Paul doesn't quote any of them. Instead, he says, Peter, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. What he's, what he's saying is, what he's saying is, beneath all sin is a type of self-justification. And unless you see that and begin to deal with that, no deep change can really happen. And Paul's getting at the core issue, not just the symptom. I mean, he could have said, Peter, quit doing that. Don't be afraid of those guys. They're not even really from James. After all, you're an apostle. Come on, dude. But he doesn't say that. He says, you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Because the way to help Peter, to actually really help him, is not just to change his behavior, not just to scold him or shame him, not just to say, you're not keeping the rules, but to say, You've forgotten the gospel. And we need to get into that, Peter. Beneath all sin is a kind of self-justification. It happens one of two ways. There are those who basically say, I'm going to keep the rules so that God has to love me. And other people that say, God has to love me and I don't care about keeping the rules. He has to, you know, I basically get to make the rules. There's two ways to save yourself, in other words. You can try to keep the rules or you can try to make the rules. But they're both ways of saying, I don't need Jesus. There's two ways of saying, I don't need Jesus. One is to say, I can keep the rules. The other is to say, he doesn't get to tell me how to live. I'm going to make the rules. But both of those are attempts at self-salvation. Okay? And both of those are out of line with the truth of the gospel. And here's the thing. Unless you see how your sin relates to the gospel 
you're powerless to change. I, I've been doing college ministry a long time, and sometimes I'll ask somebody like how they're doing, and they might say something like, you know, I've really been struggling with like gossip lately, but, but I'm working on it. You know how to really mess with somebody? Is to ask them, well, tell me exactly how you're working on it. <laughs> because I'm working on it is kind of code for I think about it a lot and I feel really bad about it. <laughs> but they don't really know what to do. Like, I just feel bad. I, I realize that I'm a gossip and I feel bad about it. What is, what, how do you work on it? Well, we have some insight here. Why do you gossip? Why? Is it so that other people will become the focus and people won't look at you in your shame and your insecurity? Is it so you can tear other people down to feel good about yourself? Unless you know why, you're really pretty powerless to change. But when you see that the reason I'm a gossip is because I'm trying to make myself important in the eyes of others, that I feel like I need to be part of the in crowd, and one of the best ways to do that is to have information that other people don't have, and then people will always want to hear me, and they'll always want to invite me to be part of the in crowd, and that feels really good. Unless you understand that that's a self-salvation formula, that you're using it to bring peace or security or power, the thing you crave, unless you see it that way, you're only ever going to kind of feel bad about it, but you won't know what to do. But when you see that it's a form of self-salvation, then you have the opportunity to say, what am I doing? Why am I doing that? Jesus has already made me perfectly clean because he lived and died in my place. Why do I need to try to bolster that by getting other people to like me? Or by feeling like I'm powerful and getting other people's attention or being able to knock everybody else down so that I rise to the surface. You, know, you don't need that when you understand the gospel. And so the Bible regularly comes and says, remember and rejoice in what God has done for you so that you'll quit trying to do what he already did. You don't need to save yourself. You can't. But you don't need to if you're in Christ. He's already made you beautiful in God's sight. So Paul doesn't say, repent of being a racist, Peter. He says, repent of not believing the gospel and pursuing a type of self-salvation. Yes, racism is terrible. But it doesn't fix it to just say that. How are you looking to your group your culture, your way of doing things to say, this is why I matter more than you. This is why God should give me his love because I'm better. Tim Keller puts it really well. He says, Paul says that the roots of racism are a resistance to the gospel salvation. In other words, racism is a continuation of works righteousness in a part of our lives. It is a failure to bring our relationships with other cultures into line with grace salvation. Racism arises because our hearts still oppose grace and seek to find ways of self-justification. We need to devise ways to feel superior to others. One of the ways we do this is through making our culture an idol. Extreme cases of this result in militarism and fascism. fascism. But to some degree, all of us Try to use our culture and our race to feel superior to others. If you're a member of a racial majority, 
your racist cultural pride is fairly easy to see. But if you're a member of a racial minority, it's a bit more complex. But it happens when you begin to think I'm more noble than you of the dominant race. I've suffered more and I'm not an oppressor like you. Our hearts are so twisted that we can even make our suffering a way that we feel superior to other people. It's not just a first century issue. Um, there was an article posted today on the Nine Marks website. I don't know, some of you know about that Nine Marks website, Mark Dever, um, by this guy, uh, Micah Edmondson. He's a professor at Calvin College, Presbyterian pastor. Thought this was great. He says evangelicals, people raised in good Bible believing churches, are good at spotting legalism when someone says Christians don't dance or shouldn't dance. But do we recognize it in the heart that says, my people are better than yours? Throughout the history of the American church, white supremacy has functioned as a form of religion, a form of legalism. In colonial America, enslaved Africans were often denied formal membership in churches, relegated to the balcony during worship services, forced to sit on the floors in shackles and to take communion after whites. Whiteness was part of the currency of acceptance in the American church. The formation of the black church was a theological response to that form of legalism. During the civil rights period, southern white churches often excluded blacks within their written bylaws. Even today, many churches practice a soft separation, communicating in various ways that certain cultures are not welcomed on an equal footing. When we force other cultures to assimilate to our cultural practices in order to be accepted into our churches, it says something about how we believe people are accepted before God. Like, you all feel like that stuff's wrong, but do you understand that it's saying something about what you believe about the gospel and how people are accepted before God? That's what Paul is trying to get us to see here. It's not just wrong. It's not just evil. It's connected to how you think you're accepted before God. We need to ask ourselves, are we communicating something about the currency of acceptance with God simply in the way we relate or do not relate across cultural lines? I think there's a lot that more that could be said there, but let me just jump to this last application. How do we do gospel confrontation? Do you think that's something we should do? A friend of mine, a mentor of mine, after I got out of seminary, said to me, intimacy is born through conflict, not through running away from it. It's worth thinking about. Intimacy is born through conflict. Here's what we see about how Paul does that here. He talks to Peter face to face. He doesn't talk about him behind his back. And he does it face to face, and he does it in public. And you might be a little offended by that, but here's the biblical principle. The degree to which the hypocrisy is public is the degree to which the confrontation should be public. They should be commensurate. If Peter, a leader in the church, is publicly denying the gospel by how he lives, then the rebuke from church leadership needs to be public because he's harming the whole church by what he's doing. Now, Paul does it when Peter is clearly in the wrong. He doesn't get on him for, like, little things, little picky things. 
I, I once had the mom of a student who thought it was her job. Really, she really thought this was her calling from God. She would write five to ten letters a week to people she didn't know, telling them about their sin. She thought that that was her gift. That's not what's going on here. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more to that story. But, she, uh, but, but the, the, you know, that's not what Paul does here. He, he, he goes to Peter when Peter is clearly in the wrong, when it's public, and when it's a pattern. And there are two verses in the Bible that you have to kind of work together here. One is in um, 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, love overlooks a multitude of sins. That means you don't go have a big gospel confrontation with somebody over every little thing. But then in Galatians 6, which we'll talk about later when we get to chapter 6, Paul says, if you see a brother or a sister trapped in a sin, then you who are spiritual should restore them gently. Peter is trapped. It's not just a screw up. His fear has called him to shrink back. But notice the way he does it. Paul confronts Peter by appealing to the gospel that they have in common. He says, come back and be with me here in the company of sinners who need grace. It's not an us versus them confrontation. It's not Peter against Paul. It's Peter inviting, sorry, Paul inviting Peter, remember you're a sinner saved by grace. The reason you're separating yourselves from these Gentiles is because you've separated yourself from the company of sinners who are saved by grace. So come back and be part of the company of sinners saved by grace. Because the company of sinners saved by grace, those people live with humility and welcome to other sinners saved by grace. Come back and be with us. He doesn't confront Peter from a place like, hey, I've got it together. No, he says, come back and join me, another sinner saved by grace. Don't use this passage as a way to confront others while remaining oblivious your own attempts at self-salvation. The best time to confront somebody is when you really don't want to do it, but you feel like you have to. Let's pray together.